Hello there, this is Lisa Borders, and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Janet, welcome. So great to be with you today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Listen, I want to talk about your life. It has been a magnificent one and it continues to be. You and I know each other through Duke University. You've been my mentor on the board, but I want those who are listening to know you like I do. So may we start at the beginning with where you're from and growing up there and what that was like. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. I, in the beginning, I was born in New Orleans, Louisiana. It's funny that I uh, was embarrassed about that for some time, probably until I was 30 years old, and realized that all of us have to own our life experiences. So my experiences are different from yours and different from mutual friends of ours and people we don't know. But I'm pretty proud that I'm from New Orleans, a city that has a confluence of cultures that built the city. But when I lived in New Orleans, which was prior to 1965, the year I went to college, the city was segregated. Not to get political, but in the year 2016, some of the people running for office said, let's go back to the good old days. And I'm thinking, now, let me think, if I go back, to the days when I was a child. So the 50s and the 60s, they weren't good old days, if you will. I'm not interested in going back, nor are the people of New Orleans. That is so interesting that you were embarrassed. Unpack that for me a little bit. Why were you embarrassed? I grew up in New Orleans. I did get a chance to travel with my parents. I'm an only child by train and by car to New York or to California. I had relatives in both uh, places, but they treated me like I was their country cousin. I'm from the South. I'm from a smaller city than Atlanta, as an example. And in fact, not to get off on that, but I think there's a little competition that New Orleanians feel with people from Atlanta. Really? Tell me more. I'll, I'll tell you why, because New Orleans has a magnificent location on the Mississippi River. Whereas Atlanta does not quite have a location, if you want to call it that, that is magnificent. But frankly, because of political leadership in Atlanta, and that includes yourself over some number of years, they have zoomed ahead of New Orleans. And we have not enjoyed that kind, that level of leadership and that kind of leadership that has gone out and brought business and commerce to the city. I applaud Atlanta even without a location. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Listen, thank you so much for that. But one of your native sons 
Ambassador Andrew Young has been highly influential, not only here, but across the globe. Were you connected to him in any way or what type of impact did he have on your life, if any, in New Orleans? Andrew Young uh, and I refer to ourselves as country cousins. We are not cousins uh, by blood. However, his mother, who is deceased now, was my godmother. Oh, and wow. So sometimes he calls himself my god brother. And when he first met my husband, and I'd been married maybe five years, in Washington, D.C., he said, Janet is a BAP. She is a Black American princess. And I'm like, I love it. Thank you, Andrew. (laughs) But he always thanked my mother who owned a dental laboratory with my father, where they made dentures and appliances and false teeth and things of that sort. And his father was a dentist. And he thanked my mother because when he worked for her one summer, that solidified that he would not become a dentist. (laughs) And that's when he decided to go into the ministry. Oh, that is so interesting. Our family and his family are still very close. As I said, his mother was my godmother and his parents are deceased. He has a brother. He has his five children uh, and grandchildren. But the entire time he was marching with Martin Luther King during the 60s, all of us supported him and his family. And he is a role model to me. He doesn't even know this. He's a role model to me only in so much as I think about my own life or the choices I've made. And he made a choice that was in the interests of everybody. The marching through the South in the early 60s resulted in the Civil Rights Bill of 1965, which which changed the fabric of America. Totally. Since I know what it meant for us to not have that before 1965. I can tell you it was the seminal moment, if you will, in this country, in in my estimation, in the last hundred years. And he was a big part of that. And it was a sacrifice for him and his family. And most of us don't work in our day-to-day work. We don't give up as much as he gave up for the common good. Fabulous connection, and it reminds us of what a small world we live in. So thank you for sharing that. By the way, he is from New Orleans, but he's an Atlantan now. (laughs) We have fully embraced him, let me be clear. So let's go back to New Orleans, though, to your mom and dad, since you all were so close. And I know, based on what you're telling me and how I've seen your life unfold, that it has been impactful, the work that he did. But getting to 1965 and then the decisions subsequent to that. Let's go back to Janet and your parents. And I've heard you often talk about math and analytics and your ability to analyze and being pushed toward that side of your brain as opposed to some of what was done with young women when you were growing up. Tell me about that because I think some of us are still living that today. Okay. I am an only child and my parents doted on me. I'm going to hold up a picture. You might see it of me when I love that in New Orleans. (laughs) Okay. We are going to have that picture on the website when it's time for Yes to launch, just so you know. So note to the editor, there's a picture Janet's going to share with me. 
Okay. And so I grew up, I took piano lessons and I was very good in math. That comes back when I went to college. My husband, who of course, when I met him was, uh, was at Yale and playing football and a scholar athlete and who went on to a long career in the NFL. My husband cannot believe that when I was in high school, I had the choice to take either physics or phys ed. And I took physics. <laughs> oh my he does, goodness. He, he believes that was the seminal moment in my life and I made the wrong decision. <laughs> but as a matter of fact, I think I made the right decision. And I was always inclined toward math and science and perhaps less toward the humanities. I didn't have inspiring history teachers and things of that sort. So uh, jumping forward till today, my son and husband both majored in history. They like to say that I only know enough to fit in a thimble. I don't know anything. And they are constantly giving me books and trying to, in, uh, trying to uh, make up for what I did not learn in high school and college. Okay, Janet, that is just hilarious. That is hilarious. But I know your husband and your son, we're going to talk about them in just a minute. But okay, you've given me something to tell them when I see them. That a whole heck of a lot. Let's move forward to college and your years at Wellesley. Coming from Louisiana, which was segregated when you were growing up, how in the hell did you choose Wellesley so far in the Northeast, geographically very far away, but also culturally, it was not an integrated school and it was all girls. Help me understand what drove you there. Let me back up. My father did not have a college education. He graduated from high school. My mother graduated from Arkansas AMN, which is a historically Black college in Pine Bluff, Arkansas. Sidebar, the University of Arkansas integrated its Black colleges and white college, the University of Arkansas. So now the school is the University of Arkansas at Pine Bluff. Oh, wow. Uh, I don't know if it's part of the HBCUs, but it was when she was there, which would have been in the late 20s and early 30s. She was even a homecoming queen and went back for football games all the time. Wow. So my mother had a college education and both my mother and father wanted me to go to college. I wanted to go to college. I did apply to Tulane University in New Orleans, which I would have been integrating along with others in 1965. But I applied to some schools around the country, including Wellesley, chosen by my mother. She read an article about the Seven Sisters Colleges, which sort of went alongside the Ivy League. Again, Ivy League schools did not admit women until 1969. So here we are in 65, and these are all boys' schools, so it was not a question of going to Yale, where my husband was in school, or Harvard, or any schools like that. And so I applied only to Wellesley amongst the Seven Sisters, because after reading this article in Time magazine, she decided that school had a sense of community, a sense of giving back to community. It was written in Latin in our, our motto, if you will, and she wanted that for me. She also wanted an opportunity to expand opportunities for me beyond the Mississippi River, and that would require me leaving New Orleans. Oh, my goodness. So this is immersion, immediate immersion. 
And there's one other thing to just as at Duke and other schools today. And then I had to go through an alumna interview. The woman who interviewed me was white, the first white person I'd ever met. And she, the year before, had been queen of the Mardi Gras. Now, that means nothing to anyone. But in New Orleans, that was a huge thing. So her picture had been on the front page of the paper, and she'd been on a float with a crown and, I don't know, a a scepter. What am I trying to say? Scepter. 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 And and (laughs) I was so intimidated to go into her home. But she must have given me a good interview because I got in. And my mother sent me and father to Wellesley. I went alone, flew to Boston, had cab fare to get to Wellesley, got to Wellesley. I was not enchanted right away. Big campus. I had a lot of young white women around me because it's all women. And first of all, the funny thing is that all the women smoked. And they had long, this is my pen, they had long cigarette holders and they'd hold it and they'd say, so Janet, tell me, you're from New Orleans. Is that right next to Georgia? And I thought, oh my God, where are these women from? <laughs> Did they not take any geography? <laughs> oh my Lord, that is so funny. And they were very, the, the cigarette holder and smoking and I didn't smoke. And I certainly, if I smoked, wouldn't have used a cigarette holder. And, and I would say at dinner, because we passed the food at dinner and I'd say, would you pass the bread and the butter? They say, oh my gosh, did you hear Janet? She said, butter. Look, just pass the bread and the butter. (laughs) So the, 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 the seminal moment in my life occurred three days after I got to Wellesley. So I knew if I can't stay here, I it's cold, first of all. I'm from a warm weather, I'm a warm weather person. It, it, everybody's been to Europe. The women are wearing pearls. They're smoking with the cigarette holder. They're very sophisticated and they're sure of themselves. And I'm a dorky 18 year old who is out of her element. They don't know anything about Black people. I knew all about white people because I had a television. But unlike today, Black people were not on TV then. So it we weren't on entertainment television. We weren't doing the news. We weren't on sports. We weren't anywhere. We were not known in the same way that we Blacks knew whites. And let me stop also and say that as a Catholic school student, I'd gone to Catholic school for 12 years. I was so naive about race. I thought that there were two races. There were, there were three races. There were blacks, there were whites, and then there were the race of nuns and priests <laughs> who were born nuns and priests. <laughs> so oh, after 12 uh, years of Catholic school, I get it. I get I, it. I, it took a while for me to understand that they were not born nuns and priests. Okay. Again, it was cold. They were sophisticated. They smoked. They had taken things like Greek mythology in high school. And I was like, oh my goodness, what is this? I'm never going to be able to compete with these women. And of course, they were all white. So I called home expecting my dad. I was very close to my dad to answer the phone. 
I'd say, I can't stay here for these four or five reasons. And he would say, I'm coming to get you tomorrow. I'll buy you a car. You can go to Tulane. But my mother answered the phone and the rest is history because she said, too cold, wear socks. They've admitted you. It's their responsibility to help you graduate. Forget about the Greek mythology. You don't need it. She was right. <laughs> I don't know. I think she just she's just making this up because she didn't know what Greek <laughs> mythology was either. But you don't need it. it. It doesn't matter that you haven't been to Europe. She just knocked down all of my arguments. But then she said, you are going to extend the benefit of the doubt to these young white women and you are not going to assume they're bad because they're white. Now, don't call back about this. Janet, are you kidding me right now? It was mom who was the brick wall who pushed you, right? Oh my God. This was clearly enlightening for you, right? To hear her not only be tough, but give you these reasons and give you the confidence to go on. Well, you know what? It was telling me I can't run away from school. I cannot go home. I'm an only child. So my options, that's it. There, you know. Now, the third option is to tough it out and stay. And it was interesting that it empowered me. So the next time one of them said, did you hear Janet say, pass the butter? I said, listen, you pass the butter right now. <laughs> And forget about how I pronounce it. Just get the food over here, please. It it changed my demeanor, if you want to call it that. It gave me confidence. Heck, I still felt like they had academic advantages, and maybe they did, that I didn't have. And I can look back now, and I'll jump ahead to my 25 years afterwards was also when my son was graduating from Duke. And I went to my reunion, then I went to his reunion. Uh, his graduation. And I said, Grant, listen, it really doesn't matter where you graduate in your class. It is what you do with your degree. Because I have just left women who I'm close to, and I know some of them are brilliant. And frankly, I'm shocked that some of them have done nothing with the considerable education that they have, the considerable expertise that they have. So again, it, and I felt like I graduated in the middle of my class and I felt I've tried to use the education I was fortunate enough to get every day of my life. And I tried to pass that on to him that he should do the same thing. Oh my goodness. Okay, you gave him fantastic advice as always. That's my brother from another mother. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back and talk about Grant Hill in just a second. But let's go back to finishing college and you getting this fantastic education empowered by your mother after you are immersed in this very unusual, scary, intimidating environment. Pull that forward for me, if you will, in your professional life. Can you talk about working at the Pentagon? I've read a little bit about that, but did those years at Wellesley help prepare you for what you experienced at the Pentagon and the work you would do there? Yes, I'd say it did. It's interesting that I still today have trouble with the fact that Wellesley is still all women. I'm one of the few alumna who would welcome men into Wellesley, but that's not going to happen because my fellow alum are not in favor of that. 
so I, I can look back and say that even with the absence of men in the classroom, that it was empowering to us and to me as a female to go to school there. And yes, that helped me when I went to work. I was in a very male environment and not nece- I was young and it was not necessarily that I would have been uh, respected, if that's the word. I had a, a valuable assist from the secretary of the army for whom I worked and then went into business with him for 30 years. He, when he was secretary of the army, didn't take any crap from anyone, including general officers who had four stars on their shoulder or colonels or light colonels or majors or other officers in the army. So he treated me with respect and demanded that they treat me and other women and certainly other minorities with respect. So he himself is a minority. He's African-American. Give his name, Janet. We got to give him a shout out. He was a man before his time, clearly. Yes, yes, he is and was. He is Clifford Alexander. He is still doing it in New York City. He's no longer, we're no longer in business together. We sold the business in 2010. However, he has, I don't know that he's out speaking and that sort of thing. By the way, the next generation of Alexanders, his son and his daughter, but I'll mention the daughter, Elizabeth Alexander, is, I think for maybe two years now, has been president of the Mellon Foundation. And just to show you how Black leadership will move from generation to generation, in his case, his daughter now has gone into a venerated, old, distinguished, I think $7 billion foundation, and changed their focus so that they are focused on social justice. So they give a lot of money to large universities like Wellesley or Yale or Duke and others. And, uh, but now they're only giving money if it is toward social justice. So this is leadership by a younger woman who's in her fifties, who is, I think, following in the footsteps of her father. Clearly, Secretary Alexander left some indelible fingerprints, not only on his daughter, but on you and your career. So can you talk a little bit about what you guys were doing when you worked together at the Pentagon and then subsequent to that? Because it sounds like relationship was important and trust building that equity over time, particularly with someone who was philosophically aligned and supportive of you and the work that you were trying to do. Right. At the Department of Army, he was the Secretary of the Army, and so he made all of the final decisions. As his special assistant, I worked with him and with general officers within the office of the Secretary, who were working, I, I guess we were had some principal areas. One was weaponry and making sure that the weapons that we use were aligned with our allies. I'd say junior enlisted travel and things that had to do with helping our enlisted men and women. And by the way, he firmly believed that women are soldiers in the army and have to be treated like soldiers in the army. You talk about before his time. Now, wait, Uh, Janet, what year was this? What circa what? 1977 until 81. Wow. And so it was a bit before his time. I should have backed up and said that he had been 
chairman of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission under President Johnson. And he also worked in the White House under President Johnson on the National Security Council staff, and before that for President Kennedy on the National Security Council staff. So he had already devoted his adult life and then proceeded to continue that in our business to the pursuit of equity in the workplace for women and minorities. But back to the Army, I think that he, again, he treated women like soldiers in the Army, and that was pretty revolutionary at a time when I think the Congress was afraid of, they had congressional exclusions, if that's the correct term, that did not allow certain military specialties to be pursued by women. For example, close combat, because they did not want any consorting, if that's the word, in the foxholes, as if men and women in the army have time to consort while they're being shot at. Bizarre. And they also feared, because we were still in the Vietnam War at the tail end of it, that there would be body bags of women coming back and that they could not politically deal with that. But it was very interesting. Secretary Alexander had a son and a daughter in high school at the time. And he would say publicly that he would not weigh the life of his son over that of his daughter or vice versa. I I only had one child, a son, and he was six years old. So I, about four years old when I went to that job. And so I didn't have, I didn't have a perspective, if you want to say it like that. And he's a little bit older than I am. His children are older and it was strong. However, it was before its time. I would call him a Renaissance man, Janet. He was all that in a bag of chips. So that is absolutely fantastic. So he didn't weigh the life or the potential of his son over his daughter. And that seems to have informed his behavior at work too, for the principles that he believed in. Talk to me a little bit about Grant in all of this, your, your only boy, your baby boy. He's a grown man now married with his own family, my brother from another mother, but He is exceptional. You and Calvin have done an amazing job of this Hall of Famer, 19 years in the NBA, all-star forever. He's amazing. How in the heck did you do that while you were working, being married? How'd you do that? (laughs) Grant is an only child of two only children. So the fact that he survived living with (laughs) me and Calvin... (laughs) and has flourished as an adult is a a separate story. So let's have a podcast on that. I think he's very balanced. And let me go all the way back to childhood. Grant, uh, as I said, an only child, he went to a daycare center. It's very interesting that once somebody did a study of the daycare centers, I said, but I think you need to talk to people who are now in their 20s who went to daycare when they were six instead of the ones who are six today, because what you're trying to find out is there's something that didn't work or they weren't home enough or the parents weren't involved enough, because I thought he would, he could have been a case study, (laughs) if you will. He went from daycare to having, I'll call it babysitters, who came, they were high school students who came in every day, but I was large and in charge, so large and in charge that 
they started, he and his friends called me the sergeant, but I needed a, a promotion. So I wish to be called the general. <laughs> and as Grant said, some of them even saluted me, which I also liked and allowed them to do so, encouraged it even. But I was strict. I was strict with them. And when they were in grade school, if they got in trouble with me at my house, I punished them. And if they said to me something like, I'm going to tell my mom that you punished me. I said, i tell you what, while you are being punished, I'm going to call her and tell her I punished you and why. They were very afraid of me. And my husband was a pussycat. So <laughs> he just rolled over and Grant could get away with murder. I'm not saying that there weren't challenges, but I do think my advice for young people who have children is you do the very best you can. That's all you can, anyone can ask of you. So I did miss some soccer games. I remember once that my husband was at work, but was in Cleveland and he missed a, let me see, Grant must've been in the first grade and he was the uh, band director of the first grade band. And so he's directing the band. And it was very funny. He wasn't very good, but he was in charge. And I, I didn't have a video camera or anything. We didn't have cameras and cell phones. So there was no way for Calvin to share that moment. That moment came and went and he did not share in it. So sometimes we miss things. I was there for that one. And we tried to coordinate so that someone was always there. And by the way, he did call every day at four o'clock when he got home. And we discussed what happened in school, which was what would happen if I were at home. And, and so we would discuss what happened in school. He would announce that he was going to order Domino's. Now he ordered the same pizza every day for probably 10 years. So he would just call, say it's Grant, send the, send the usual. And they'd send it. And he always had there was no credit. You had to pay in cash. And I had left money for him to pay for it. So that was his four o'clock snack, if you want to call it that. But I think it was the best that I could do. And one other thing is I did bring him to the Pentagon. I did bring him to my office when I started my business. So he physically knew where I was when he got home. If, I, if he called and I said, listen, I can't talk long because there's a meeting in the secretary of the army's office to discuss the pregnancy policy at the, at the military academy at West Point, now that we have women at West Point. By the way, that sailed over his head because he was only eight, but at least he knew that we were together in the secretary of the army's office with others. He'd been in that office also discussing something about West Point, wherever that is. Janet, that's amazing that you gave him that exposure at such a young age. Let me ask you a question, though. This is something I dealt with, and maybe many others did, too. I dealt with a lot of guilt, and I've heard you talk about this before, but I want you to talk about it again, because I didn't deal with it. I cried myself to sleep. I tore myself up, had upset stomach all the time. How'd you deal with it? Or did you have any guilt? It sounds like you put some things in place, like the everyday phone calls and the visits to work that perhaps put some salve on that. What'd you do? I don't believe, recommend, or hope that young people with young children have guilt. I think we can't undo as adults with adult children, guilt that we had at, at, when we were younger. 
But those who may be listening who are younger in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and have young children who are still in school. So I'd say anybody under 18. You, you, again, you do the best that you can do. And you make sure your children know that you are working to provide the life that they have. It, I think Grant understood that. I, and as I said, I was pretty strict. Now I was home. Oh, I was home every night, but when I had to travel and he had to travel, then a babysitter stayed at the house. And by the way, once he had a terrible accident, he built a ramp and had a dirt bike and he was going to try to jump across the street and with the dirt bike and he fell on his face and it tore the skin straight down off his nose, his lips, his chin. So... I get a phone call in Boston, where I was, on work for the Pentagon, and I'm told that he had this accident. It's a wonder he didn't break his neck. But so the babysitter called her mother. She and her mother took him to the hospital. Everything was superficial, all these cuts. And when I got home the next day, I took him to the hospital because it looked like he'd been in a fight and lost. (laughs) And... Everybody, they said, look, his skin is all going to grow back. He'll all be fine. Now there are no scars from any of that. But that was one of those moments, you know what I mean? When the truth of the matter is, I think the sitter and her mother were calmer than I would have been. Young though the sitter was, she did the right thing to call an adult and to take him to the hospital. So he was fine. He, they'd given him an aspirin or something. He did not have any lasting effects, but there was some punishment for having built the, the ramp. He was not evil Knievel jumping over the <laughs> river in Idaho. <laughs> Wait, Janet, he has an accident, has to go to the hospital and then gets on punishment for doing something that he should not have been doing. Yes, there are a lot of punishments. I won't get into that, but it's interesting about this. I think young parents today, Grant included, they don't punish their kids. I go back to my mother's advice uh, at Wellesley. My mother didn't take any crap. You're not running away from school. You're not coming home. Now, this is what is going to happen. Today, my granddaughter can say, I have a hangnail. I don't want to go to school today. <laughs> and they're like, oh, just a hangnail. <laughs> oh, like, my, my mother were only alive. <laughs> Janet, you are a force of nature. Ah, it, it, I, I only recommend, I don't know that you have to be as strict as I was, but I'm amused that my grandchildren game the system. You know what I'm trying to say? They are way smarter than their parents and they're constantly manipulating them. And, and I think the par- parents fall for the hokey doke. But they're, you know, it's their kids. I think they're doing a very good job. Although I think at least one of them manipulates the situation to her benefit (laughs) oh my I just love it that the kids are that smart yeah yeah (laughs) I just love that let me think a little bit more you're balancing work at the Pentagon raising Grant being married to Calvin ultimately you go into business with Secretary Alexander talk a little bit about this entrepreneurship how did you make that pivot did Wellesley and that empowerment speech that your mom gave you weigh into that? Did 
Secretary Alexander, the whole equity in the workplace. Help me understand how you made that pivot. We decided to go into business together after I had worked for him at the Pentagon. We owned the business 50-50. And so actually his wife owned 25%. He owned 25%. I owned 50%. So it was black and female. Wow. Wow. And it followed a pattern, the business it did, in terms of the work we were doing. It really followed his career, perhaps more than mine, because the work was involved in helping major companies attract and retain women and minorities in senior jobs. Now, look, then and today, companies can attract women and minorities at the entry level without help. It's at the top where the problem is. And still, it's a problem, although there are far more women and and more minorities also in senior positions in major corporations in America today. But Black Lives Matter this year has shown that there isn't enough, that we have some, but not enough. So we have not reached nirvana. (laughs) One company said to me, when will we know we've reached nirvana? I said, I will tell you. (laughs) So we're not there yet, but we were even further away from it in 1981 when we left the Pentagon because, again, President uh, Reagan had come in and he had a right to name his own secretary, his own special assistant, and all the other political positions in the Pentagon. The business we had for 30 years was, was, listen, we worked very hard. Business was lucrative, but the business was successful in the context that we we were able to see minorities and women, and I do mean Blacks, Hispanics, and Asians, in positions that they had not been in before our work. So we were, we were satisfied and, and gratified with respect to that. So Janet, you guys were actually from, I would call you light years ahead of where corporate America was generally. And frankly, because we are still having this challenge today, I'll be 63 in a month and I still can look back over my career and I was often the only woman or the only person of color or both. So you guys recognizing the need for this type of work and then the management consulting entrepreneurship bent is really amazing to me. Tell me how you guys had the confidence. I can see how you could identify the need, but how do you have the confidence to go strike out on your own and start a business and do so well, and frankly, sell it 30 years later. Thank you for saying that. It was hard. Any, first of all, anyone who starts a business of his or her own is taking a leap of faith. It is unlike working for a company, an organization, a government, a a sports team, whatever, where you have a paycheck every two weeks or once a month or twice a month or whatever. The uncertainty of the next paycheck, quote unquote, is dependent entirely on you going out and getting the business. We were hard workers and we had some rejection. There's no question. I tell Grant again, and many friends of Grant's, that when we started our business in in 2000, I'm sorry, in 1981, which was again after the inauguration in 1981 of President Reagan. So the election was in 80. We borrowed money from a bank, something that small businesses cannot do today. We had a line of credit 
And we were incentivized in terms of the work that we wanted to do by that line of credit. Oh, and a second thing, by the fact that my business partner had not one but two children at Yale. <laughs> can you say tuition? Oh yes. my. Yeah, can you say tuition? So we call them the corporate children. They were his children. But the point is that we were both incentivized by the debt to the bank and by the debt, if you want to call it that, to Yale. So that meant that when a company rejected our proposal, we picked ourselves up and went to the next company. And I'd say that we picked up business to the tune of about one in 10 companies. So we were running all over the country to companies and one out of 10 would hire us. We saw a lot of change take place, but one thing that we always promoted and few companies did, but now companies are doing, was to hold managers and executives accountable for the hiring and promotion and advancement of women and minorities and have it tied to their incentive pay. So wait, Janet, they were doing that then? That's supposed to be like a revolutionary thought now. They weren't doing that then. They weren't. Oh, my bad. Advised. Now, as consultants, you can, let's say, let's say as consultants, we advised that you do this much. And if a company did that much, we felt some sense of gratification. If they did as much as we said, we felt even more. But we were before our time. Because the truth is, in the business world, individuals, anything that's serious, you have to hold individuals accountable. And as adults in the business world, and I'm thinking now in the corporate world, though our principles apply in organizations and also in the government, individuals are incentivized in the corporate world by money. If I say to you that you and I are both working in the widget company... (laughs) And I'm in charge of the East Coast and you're in charge of the West Coast. And both of us, let's say, report to a CEO. And you're doing a terrific job of of employing men and women and, and minorities all through your division. Whereas I am very prejudiced and only hire Black people, no, only hire white people from New Orleans. People I know, people I think I know, people I trust, and right. that's, that's the limit right there. Now, you could say that I will, in fact, I will say, I will get the best white people from New Orleans, but because I'm limiting myself only to New Orleans, I am not going to get the best white people in the United States. Because if I limit my pool, I can't do that. So, of course... That analogy translates into the way many, I'll say white men, because white men are predominant in corporate America, limit the pool from which they recruit. (laughs) And I always say to them, you might get the best white men, but you won't get the best people. And what was their reception then? I know we are still having these same conversations now, and it seems like folks who are in charge, and it's primarily, particularly in the private sector, it is white men who are running public companies, and really they're staying within their comfort zone. They're not necessarily delivering the best results. They're all kind of studies that tell us empirically 
that diverse teams and teams that have a variety of talents and perspectives actually deliver better for a company. So when you were telling folks then, you and Secretary Alexander were making these recommendations, did you get blank stares? You got one out of 10 people take you on as consultants, which is amazing for 1981. It's People are struggling with that today. So what kind of reaction or response were you getting when people would hear these recommendations? Sometimes it was negative. They would say we'd have, first of all, we almost always worked with the CEO because the CEO had the overall responsibility. He in turn might turn us over to the head of HR, but we almost always started. We had to have a buy-in from the CEO, somebody at the tippy top of the company. I'd say the biggest issue was overholding people accountable. So let's say that you, I'll give as an example. At one time, we were working simultaneously for waste management, which is in the waste management business, garbage collection. And we were also at the same time working for the National Institutes of Health, a federal agency. Now, here were the problems. At the National Institutes of Health, you had doctors working together in, I don't know, the Cancer Institute or the Infectious Disease Institute or... uh, they had 27 institutes, so one of the institutes. And all of them are doctors, men and women, but the male doctors are grabbing the breasts of the female doctors while they're looking for a cure for cancer. At waste management, you have individuals who are not doctors. They are truck drivers, and now they're female truck drivers, and they are sharing a portion of a locker room. And the women are concerned because the because their locker is next door to a man's locker. And in his locker, he has a Playboy bunny picture. Okay. Now, (laughs) those are the two problems. All right. If you ask me, I think we need to sit down and talk to the women at Waste Management. And we need to have them redesign the locker room, if you will. So there is more privacy. Frankly, if a man next to me has the Playboy button, I don't care. You know what I mean? It doesn't interfere with my locker nor with my capacity to do the work. However, it in some way offended, if you will, some of the women. So I'm not, it it isn't whether it offends me, it offended them. So if we could separate or put a separation of some sort, if you will. Now, they can't carry out any kind of misogyny uh, uh, toward other women, uh, toward women who work with them simply because they have a Playboy bunny picture in their locker. And over here, the women with their lockers, they have the right to have not see that if that in some way offends them. I think you have a whole other set of problems at National Institutes of Health. And so we said to the director of the National Institutes of Health that if you don't hold these individuals who are heads of these labs uh, accountable, this is going to continue. And this is frankly outrageous for people who have so much education and serious work that they're doing. And at one point he said, and again, I don't know if it was cancer, but I'll use this as an example. He'll say, but if John Doe is the head of the Cancer Institute and he's that close to a cure for cancer, should We give him a pass? And the answer is no, you shouldn't give him a pass. Because it's not him who's that close. It's the whole lab that is. So he has to change his way of doing business. 
no one's saying that the, the mission is to be scrapped, if you will. But you can't tell me that the physical abuse of women is part of the mission. <laughs> Even as you say it out loud, it's ridiculous. Well, it sounds crazy when you say it out loud. And right, it right. would seem to me that folks wouldn't have to say it out loud to get it. But if they need to say it out loud, I understand. But it's amazing to me that you were giving this counsel 30 years ago, 25 years ago, 20 exactly. years ago. And yeah. let's pull it full circle. So we're in 2020 mm -hmm. in the midst of a pandemic in the midst of economic fallout from the pandemic, we still see racial issues, sexual issues, sexual orientation issues. What advice would you be giving corporate America today along these same lines? Because Janet, we still got the issues. They are in stark view today. In stark view. First of all, today, I think I would, if I were in business for myself and I had the opportunity, and by the way, I still have the opportunity to tell business leaders in podcasts such as this, but also in my relationships, I have friends who are heads of corporations and I am still on two corporate boards. I've served on 12 and believe you me, I've brought it up on every board I've been on now. So it's still in the front of my mind. But there are several things that are different today. Number one, you can get ahead of your competition if you have an inclusive workforce. Because in a society, in a country where we have 330 million people and 130 million of them are minorities, Black, Hispanic, Asian, and mixed race. There are so many more mixed race people today, probably as many as 30 million why would not you want to get in front of that so you get the best of the 130, if you will, uh, for the future? So again, if you're making the green widgets and you're making the blue widgets, then I'm in competition with you and I want to have the best people, including those best people. So first are competitive reasons. Secondly, you've said it, a, an integrated team is going to bring different experiences to the table. So if you grew up in Atlanta and I grew up in New Orleans and we bring the experiences from birth to the, the work that we're doing, they're different experiences. We can both be women and both be black and we still had different experiences. <laughs> so, so that's what difference means, if you will. Again, it would be foolish to, to allow me to hire only people from New Orleans of any race as it would be to have a company where a man, a white man is allowed to only hire white men. Those things are equivalent, if you will. And they're both wrong. They're both bad. They don't uh, help the company in any way. Thirdly, this old retort of, I can't find any qualified black people. I can't find any qualified women. You must be blind because we and they are everywhere. When the state of California put forth two years ago, a new rule that said that every corporation headquartered in the state had to have at least one. And if it was X large, so large, then it had to have two 
females on the board by the end of 2019, or the company would have to pay a fine to the state. The first thing some of the men at some company said is, my goodness, where are we going to find the women? <laughs> my first thought was, well, I, I think the state probably has 50 million people. I don't know the number, but let's just say 50 million. 25 million are, are female and only X million of those could serve on a board. Some of them are, are not board material or they're too young or they're children. But the point is that they don't even have to go out of California, but they are not required to stay in California in, in terms of recruiting women to serve on a board. And there are so many women, yourself included, who would be fabulous board members on any number of boards in the state of California. But that was considered so radical, but they had to do it in the state legislature. And by the way, they are the first state, but you can best believe they're not going to be the only state to do that. So they are, they're throwing mud at that old retort that we cannot find, in this case, qualified women to serve on corporate boards. Frankly, again, I'm 72 years old, so I've heard that so long, it's ridiculous. It's fascinating that you bring that up, and I've heard it myself, as you well know, and we are struggling to share all the information about where strong board candidates can be found. But I know you mentioned it, you've served on 12 corporate boards, and I know you're in the Corporate Board Hall of Fame. I want to talk about how you even got started down this path, because as we look at legislation that is just now being enacted, we're trying to legislate behavior. And that is a necessary tool, I think, but it's not the only tool. Mm -hmm. Walk me through, if you could, how did you even get interested in corporate boards? Did someone bring it up to you? I get this question all the time. I serve on a corporate board, not 12 like you have, but I'm just getting started on this. And I am constantly getting the question, number one, how did they find you? Number two, how did you express your interest? Number three, how were you vetted? So I know you had a math degree from 1969 from Wellesley and had analytical skills and you'd worked at the Pentagon and worked for yourself. But help me understand what catapulted you into this board shoot, if you will. When I was much younger, so maybe 35, 40 years ago, I had uh, a cousin. He's not alive now, but he was my age. And he had gone to Harvard and then to Stanford to business school. And he had designed a proprietary program to uh, trade in commodities very intellectual guy. And he was on something called the cotton exchange. And basically it was a Wall Street exchange that regulated the buying, selling production of cotton, of all things. (laughs) Wow. This is like Eli Whitney and the cotton gin. Jesus. Everybody on the uh, cotton exchange board had something to do either as a trader in his case, or a producer or a distributor of the product. Then they decided to put six independent board members on. He called me and said, I think you'd be great. I don't know anything about the production of cotton. And he said, you don't have to know that. So I went, that was my first board. Wow. That's incredible, Janet. And one of the towers that went down at 9-11, but this was 1987. 
my second board. I sat uh, on the board of the Fuqua School of Business at Duke with one of my mentors, it turns out, later in life. And it was Dave Thomas, founder of Wendy's. Oh, my goodness. By the way, you might say, what in the world would Janet Hill have in common with Dave Thomas? And the answer is nothing. He was from Columbus, Ohio. He had not gone to college. He was adopted. This is the story of his life. And he started a store with one store, then two. But when he got to four, he said he couldn't handle it because, again, he had not had business education, etc. He was a cook. And he turned to others who had the expertise to run the business. And today, 8,000 stores, that is his legacy. So I sat next to him on the board of uh, the Fuqua School of Business at Duke. And we chatted, but I had all kinds of ideas about distance learning and things at Fuqua. And I'm always talking and making suggestions and raising my hand. And one day he turned to me and he said, Janet, you would be great for the Wendy's board. And I thought, oh, okay. So it was a relationship, if you will. So every single board I've gone on has been because either a search firm found me or someone recommended me to the board. So I think it comes down to relationships. And I think in today's world that young women and young minorities need to let individuals know of their interest in serving on corporate boards. Look, my husband served on one corporate board, Toys R Us. And while he enjoyed it and enjoyed knowing what all the new toys were that he could then get for the grandkids, he wasn't really interested in, I'm going to draw a box. He wasn't really interested in being boxed in as a board member. And so that wasn't for him. He's not a person who wanted to serve on any other boards. I liked serving on boards. I like organizational work, if you will. And I consider myself an activist, but I'm an activist who's activated from the inside. (laughs) So you have to have both. You have to have people on the inside, and then there need to be people outside and in the streets, so to speak, with peaceful protests. I am by far an insider. And, and I've seen a lot of change, a lot of positive change as an activist on the boards that I have sat on. Janet Hill, you are a blessing. And from New Orleans to the Northeast, to the new roles that you have held throughout your career and in corporate America, could I just say thank you for sharing all of this experience and all of the exposures that you've had. And yes, I do understand you got to have people in the streets, but you also got to have people in the suites. And for all the trailblazing that you have done, thank you, thank you, thank you. We are so grateful. Thank you so much for having me. All right, everyone. That was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.